0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. The terrible event we'll be talking about in this episode occurred in this month, 82 years ago, in 1941. And as usual, we'll see what else happened that year. Between January and August of that year, 10,072 men, women and children with mental and physical disabilities were asphyxiated with carbon monoxide in a gas chamber at Hadamer Euthanasia Centre in Germany, in the first phase of mass killings and the Action T4 programme there. On January the 14th, in a BBC radio broadcast from London, Victor de Lavallee asks all Belgians to use the letter V as a rallying sign, being the first letter of victoire, victory, in French, and of vrijheid, freedom, in Dutch. This is the beginning of the V campaign, which sees V-graffitis on the walls of Belgium, and later all of Europe, and introduces the use of the V sign for victory and freedom. Winston Churchill adopts the sign soon afterwards, though he sometimes gets it the wrong way round. Between the 19th and 22nd of February, there was three nights of blitz over Swansea, South Wales. Over these three nights of intensive bombing, which lasts a total of 13 hours and 48 minutes, Swansea's town centre is almost completely obliterated by the 896 high-explosive bombs employed by the Luftwaffe. 397 casualties and 230 deaths are reported. On April the 6th, Germany, Italy and Hungary invade Yugoslavia and the Battle of Greece begins. May the 24th, in the North Atlantic, the german battleship bismarck sinks british battlecruiser hms hood killing all but 3 crewmen from the total of 1418 aboard the pride of the royal navy november the 14th and the british aircraft cruiser hms ark royal sinks under tow off gibraltar after being torpedoed the previous day by german submarine u81 and lastly on the 22nd of december the Arcadia Conference opens in Washington, D.C. The first meeting on military strategy between the heads of government of the United Kingdom and the United States following the latter's entry into the war. But the historic event we'll be talking about today started on Sunday the 24th of November the previous year and continued till the last major attack in April 1941. This intensive bombardment became known as the Bristol Blitz and it heavily decimated the centre of the city.
1: Word of the Week
0: And this week, for your entertainment, we have the word... Flummox. F-L-U-M-M-O-X which is a verb that means confuse and no one is completely sure where the word flummox comes from but Charles Dickens was aware of it and used it in his 1837 novel The Pickwick Papers The word became quite common in both British and American English by the end of the 19th century During the Second World War, Bristol was a strategically important area. It had a harbour and shipyards. The Bristol Aeroplane Company factory made Blenheim and Beaufort bombers and the Beaufighter combat plane for the Royal Air Force. These made it an obvious target for air raids. And so the city was bombed heavily between June 1940 and May 1944. The longest regular period of bombing was known as the Bristol Blitz and began in autumn 1940 and ended the following spring. The first bombs of the Bristol Blitz fell at around 6 p.m. on Sunday the 24th of November 1940. A further six bombing raids took place until the last major attack in April 1941. The raid of the 24th of November 1940 was particularly severe. A local journalist who saw it wrote a vivid account. Wartime censorship meant that this could only be published after the war. In his account, the journalist described cycling down Park Street.
1: The road was covered with glass and stones and steel and hosepipes. I carried my cycle down through an avenue of flame which seemed to be straining to join its hungry hands across the cringing thoroughfare. The heat was considerable and I veered from one side to the other according to the intensity of the flanking fires. When I got to the bottom of Park Street and looked back at this mighty torch flaming to the skies, I estimated that every third shop was ablaze.
0: The bombing raid of the 24th of November lasted over six hours. 148 bombers rained 1,540 tonnes of high explosives and over 12,000 incendiary bombs down on the city. Within an hour, over 70 fires were raging. By 8 p.m., the city's water mains had been hit and the Auxiliary Fire Service, or AFS, had to relay water from the river and harbor. Bristol had 85 firemen at the start of the war. By the time of the attacks, they had expanded to 1,175 full-time officers and men, 40 women, and 3,000 part-time workers. There was little they could do in the most intense attacks. Many old buildings were severely damaged or completely destroyed, including almshouses in Temple Street and North Street, St. Nicholas Church and Clifton Parish Church, and the Dutch House, a multi-storey timber-framed building dating from 1676. There are many tales, as you can imagine, of heroism from such dark times. For example, there's Barbara Horne, who on the 3rd of January 1941, when she was 12 years old, was dressing for a New Year party. When the air raid sirens rang out, running downstairs in her party dress, she found her way blocked by an incendiary bomb. The Sunday Mirror reported that Barbara held her dress tightly and stamped on the bomb with her dance shoe to extinguish it. Barbara then went back to her bedroom to change into trousers and a jumper, then went out into the street where more incendiary bombs had fallen. She helped put out seven more of these before going on to her party. It was great fun, she later told reporters. Next up, we have Beverly Griffin, aged 18, and Michael Vicker, aged 16. They were insurance clerks working for the Employers Liability Assurance Company in Clare Street in the centre of the city. The boys had studied together at Tewkesby Grammar School and now shared lodgings in the Cotham Brow suburb. On the night of the 16th of March 1941, another heavy raid was launched on Bristol. Although it wasn't their night for firefighting, the boys left their lodgings for Clare Street to see if they could help. On the way, they noticed an incendiary bomb hit the roof of a nearby building. Griffin forced his way into the building and climbed onto the roof, dislodged the bomb and put out the fire. The boys then carried on to their offices, where they helped the civil defence workers on duty. At one point, Vicker was trying to put out a fire on a roof and narrowly escaped injury, when another bomb exploded, showering him with glass and tiles. At 6.30am, the boys returned to their lodgings to get ready for work. Both boys received a letter of thanks from the Lord Mayor for their citizenship and duty to the service of others, But it doesn't end there, because on the 11th of April, during another heavy raid, Griffin and Vicar returned to Clare Street and again helped to put out incendiary bombs. The boys then were commended by the king.
1: (laughs) Word on the Street
0: Today we take a stroll to Fountain Court in BS5, Bristol. The Reverend James Fountain was a chaplain at the Fishponds Asylum from 1850 to 1921. The Fishponds Asylum was a workhouse. The building, in later years, became known as 100 Fishponds Road and was used to accommodate elderly people on a short-term or long-term basis. This asylum was demolished in 1972 to build the housing estate of which this road is part of. Actually, there's so much to say about this building that I could do a story in the future. Let me know if you'd be interested. One of the raids that occurred during March 1941 started off quite quietly and then, only after a while, grew into a full-blown blitz, Dropping of high explosives steadily increased, and every part of the city not damaged in previous raids suffered severely. The casualties included some killed, as many thousands of incendiary bombs were dropped. But out of the large number of fires started, only 12 were serious. And it was thought that that was because there were so few big blazes to use as targets, that high explosives were scattered so indiscriminately throughout the city. One warden's post was wrecked, but out of the 10 wardens, only one was wounded. Several casualties were caused when bombs fell on shelters constructed on a piece of waste ground, and a number of people were killed when a bomb demolished the shop beneath which they were sheltering. One woman, still alive, was rescued from a cellar after being buried there for hours. Her parents were later brought out, but they were dead. A doctor sat all night by the side of a woman trapped in the basement of another house, wrecked by a bomb, and from time to time administered anaesthetics. A man and his baby daughter were killed in the basement of their house, and his wife, who was expecting another child, was trapped by the legs under a pile of debris. Eventually, members of a first aid party were able to free her. When a village in South Wales had its first raid, several cottages were damaged, and there were some minor casualties, but most of the bombs fell on a mountainside. During the raid, a German Junkers 88, which crashed in the south of England with its full load of bombs after an encounter with a night bomber, was blown to pieces as it hit the ground. Three of the crew who bailed out gave themselves up. The German High Command's communique said,
1: The Luftwaffe last night attacked various important war objectives in the south of England. The port and dock installations of Bristol and Avonmouth were effectively bombed.
0: The 4th of April 1941 saw a blitz on Bristol which had few casualties compared to others. Enemy bombers came over in force during a moonlight attack, but the anti-aircraft barrage proved very effective. The planes made many attempts to try and get past them and ended up dropping their bombs in fields and woods outside of Bristol. One eyewitness described the remarkable sight as one bomber hit by shell fragments burst into flames and crashed in Hewish near Congressbury in Somerset.
1: It seemed to me that the aircraft made several attempts to get over its target, but our gunfire was terrific. Suddenly, in the middle of the bursting shells, I saw a red glow. It got brighter moving across the sky and I was able to see a trail of smoke behind it. Then several searchlights started exploring and I saw that the glow was actually an aircraft on fire. There was a lull in the firing and the searchlights followed the bomber across the sky until it suddenly began to dive and it fell like a flaming torch
2: to the ground.
0: Three members of the crew bailed out, two of them being captured shortly after they landed. The third was killed when his parachute failed to open. A fourth member of the crew perished in the blazing plane. Mr. D. Philpot from Fishponds was walking down Castle Street in Bristol a week before the Blitz and saw a workman putting the finishing touches to the terrazzo threshold on the corner entrance of the rebuilt Boots the Chemist shop. On Sunday evening, November the 24th 1940 though, he was walking up Castle Street again and passing the Boots shop. He thought to himself that the man had done a very good job. He had just reached College Green, when he saw the flares. This is what happened next.
1: I overheard a passing soldier saying it was going to be a big raid. At that moment, the sirens sounded and people started running in all directions. I made my way to the air raid shelter under College Green and we sat facing each other on plank seating. Every time a bomb came screaming down, everybody bent forward, heads almost touching. When the all clear sounded, hours later I was stood on the corner outside what was then a tobacconist shop heat from the old Dutch house was terrific. For those few minutes that I stood there, I didn't see another living soul, and what with the whole of Castle Street burning, it was like a terrible dream. For years after, before Castle Street was finally cleared, I could still see the threshold amongst the weeds and the name of boots in black lettering.
0: Reverend S.P. Shipley was a minister of a church in Hannam and lived through the Blitzes on the Severn Estuary port. He wrote a booklet about his experiences called Siren Nights in 1943, which contained his diaries of the Blitz, as well as Blitz humour, tragedy and coincidence. One of the best stories is of some Bristol dustman who saw a line of full dustbins right beside an exploded action bomb that was due to explode any minute. They kept looking at the danger notice for quite a while until a local Bristol woman chided them, saying Not only have we been bombed, but we shall be gassed out as well if that stiff stays
2: there another week. I'll get it for you.
0: This must have shamed them into action as those bins were cleared in record time. Another tale from the Litz concerns Grace Little, who was only 14 when it all happened. Her family used the air raid shelters at the bottom of Bouverie Street, always going into the first one. Her friends from the same street would always go into the third one, taking board games like Snakes and Ladders or Dominoes to keep the children entertained. Her friends asked her mum if Grace could go into the same shelter as them during the next air raid, but she told them no. She wanted her family to be together, but conceded that she would consult with Grace's gran, it turned out that Gran was quite keen to go to the third shelter herself, knowing that there was more of a community spirit there. But when the next air raid came along, Gran felt uneasy and didn't want to go that far. So they went to their usual, the first shelter. Grace says... Our lives were given us. Bombs rained down and numbers 3, 4 and 5 were blown up, killing my friends. We heard one loud scream... And that was it. Our shelter was blocked at both ends. A white-coated doctor came and ministered to Graham as she went into shock. My mum was hard of hearing and I had to write down what had happened. When we came out of the shelter we had to step over bodies in sacks. We were dazed but thankful to be alive and to see daylight and know that our house was still intact. There was a church opposite the shelters and funerals were held there for some time after. The Blitz was hard on everyone. But for Dolly, whose husband was stationed at Purdown, while she cowered in an Anderson shelter with their baby son, every day brought a new anguish. Dolly suffered from bronchitis and the anxiety caused her to lose weight. Her sister, Jan Weber, said,
2: At Purdown, where her husband was stationed, there was sabotage. The huge gun backfired on the gunners. Two men died. Another lost his leg and Eddie, my brother-in-law, was riddled with shrapnel in his back. The wounded were taken to Cosham Hospital, where I went with my sister and the baby to see her husband. He wasn't in bad shape and he did get a little sick leave, so they were able to have a little time together through that. But then things started moving in the Middle East and my brother-in-law had to go abroad. He had embarkation leave, assuring our doll it it wouldn't it, it couldn't last much longer. But in November nineteen forty-three, my beloved sister took sick during the flu epidemic, that wretched <laughs> winter, and died after just nine days illness. The war, the blitzes, the separation from her husband brought about her death. True crime, but are looking for something different? It sounds like a sitcom. It does. The, the kind of assholes you should probably leave them alone. Do you like learning about cases so off the wall they can't possibly be true? Her wig is enormous, but it is lifted off her head by a monkey. Do you love history but want to hear about what they didn't teach you in school? It's just got a homeless where you hang your horns sign. <laughs> Do you like laughing awkwardly about cases that are bizarre and a little strange? They'd be able to wield so many knives with all of their little arms. (laughs) Then we have the podcast for you. Join me, Lindsay. And me, Madison, for Ye Old Crime. Where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. Listen every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime.
0: Have you ever heard about pterodactyl's toilet habits? Well, you won't do because the pee is silent.
1: Back in the day facts. Back in the day facts.
0: So let's start off with the 25th of November, 1975, when a loyalist gang nicknamed the Shankill Butchers undertakes its first cutthroat killing. The gang was named for its late-night kidnapping, torture and murder by throat-slashing of random Catholic civilians in Belfast. On the 26th of November, 1580, French Huguenots and Roman Catholics sign a peace treaty. The Huguenots were members of the French Protestant Church, many of whom in the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries left their homes in France to escape persecution. More than 50,000 of these refugees came to the British Isles. On the 27th of November 1807, the Portuguese royal family and its court of nearly 15,000 people leave Lisbon for their colony of Brazil to escape the invading Neapolitanic troops. On November the 28th, 1717, Blackbeard attacks and captures a French merchant slave ship, which he renames as his flagship, the Queen Anne's Revenge. On the 29th of November, 2010, Rolling in the Deep is released by Adele and it becomes the Billboard Song of the Year 2011 and received the Grammy Award for Record of the Year and Song of the Year 2012. The 30th of November, 1487, saw the first German beer purity law. This was promoted in Munich by Albert IV, Duke of Bavaria, stating beer should be brewed from only three ingredients, water, malt and hops. And lastly, on the 1st of December 1934, Leningrad mayor Sergei Kirov is assassinated. Joseph Stalin uses it as an excuse to begin his great purge of 1934 to 1938. Well, I fear that's the end of the show, but don't worry, I'll be here same time, same place next week. Now, let's take a moment to thank those voice actors that brought all the stories to life. And in this particular show, we have our very own Steve Shepherd, as well as Molly Jeffries, Carrie Ball, Joe Wilson, Kate Kendall. Sam Roberts and David Hale from St Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol and the lovely Rose Hale. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T, and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me, because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time guys, take care and look after each other.